Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome to Soccer 101, the podcast where we answer the questions about the beautiful game you never knew you had. Today, we're talking about a piece of soccer apparel that has been around since the 1500s. No, it's not Graham Rutherford's shirt collection, but football boots or soccer cleats, if you will. And in particular, we're looking at boot sponsorships. What is the story of the cleat? Who made them first? Who brought them to prominence? And who has made some bank by wearing them on the biggest stage? My name's Ryan Bailey, and we're kicking off with some studs who are going to be talking about studs, namely Taylor Rockwell. Hello. <laughs> Hello. I like that. I like the idea of Graham having a shirt from the 1500s. Graham, do you? What, what is the oldest jersey you have? Uh, I mean, it's not from the 1500s, I can tell you that much, but uh, probably my... Yes, yeah, 1600s, yeah, let's play it conservative, yeah, 1600s, 1700s. Jamestown FC over (laughs) here in the US, I like that one. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. No, in actuality, it's probably a Cantner shirt from the early 90s. There you go. (laughs) Graham Ruffin, welcome to the show. I was expecting you to say uh, you had a shirt from... Well, during the Battle of 1066, uh, they had a a little break and played soccer and they broke out some shirts, which one of which you own. I'm disappointed you don't. I mean, I would like one of those shirts. If any listener knows how I can, how I can uh, get my hands on one of those, yes, I'll add that to my collection. Uh, joining us also, Joe Lowry. Hello, sir. Hello, Ryan Bailey. Grim, I think you get that jersey by robbing a museum. Is the answer to that, that <laughs> question? Or, or being part of the battle? That I works too. That, yeah, the latter sounds easier, actually. <laughs> you realize you're I mean, strategizing fi- getting a jersey I made up. By the way, uh, I mean, I have concept jerseys for NASA. Uh, so pretty much the <laughs> they same idea. Do that. That's a great. They should do like throwback jerseys for like yeah, the Battle of Hastings, the Battle of Sterling Bridge. That could get one. I feel like Graham would go for that one rather than the Battle of Hastings. Yeah, bit too southerly for Graham's tastes, I'd imagine. <laughs> Quite right there, uh, Tay Tay. Um, uh, before we get started into boots and boot sponsorship, I'd like to go around the horn. I'd like to know your favorite pair of soccer cleats that you've ever owned. Um, mm. I'll go first to get the ball rolling. I was one of those kids who. Everyone I played with had like the Adidas Predators or the Puma Kings. I always had like sort of second tier, like Mizuno and some Lottos back in the day. But I think my favorite pair are the pair I have now. They're a Nike pair. I don't even know what they're called. They were $25 from Dick's. Uh, They are falling apart. I've had them probably nine years and they're just way, way more comfortable than anything else I've ever worn. I bought pairs since then that they just blister me up. And I go back to these ones, which are very much on their last legs. Um, so I'm probably not doing Nike a great service there. They're like, you remember Jack Grealish when um, Aston Villa got promoted to the Premier League and he had those boots on where they were literally falling apart. Oh, they yeah. were like his lucky boots. Those are what mine look like at the moment. Graham, how about you? So I was really into boots when I was when I was young. So I had had a few. I had a pair of uh, Predators, Predators, that the tongue kind of the... 
it, they kind of banded round the bottom, the sole of the shoe, so you would cover your laces. The idea being that you'd have a cleaner connection. Of course, made no difference to how I played soccer at that level, but uh, I like to think that it did. And then I also had a pair of and. To me now, this sounds terrible, and I would never have picked these now because I would probably just go for a black pair of Copa Mundials, but I had an all-white pair of Reeboks that Ryan Giggs wore at the time, and they were so unbelievably comfortable, and I genuinely felt like I played better in them. And then I, I, I lent them to a friend once for a game that I wasn't playing in, and he never gave them back to me because he said he oh. played better in them as well. So I never saw them again. And they were they were about probably about 80 pounds. So I wasn't best pleased. Is I think some... you mean ex-friend, not friend. Yeah, ex-friend. exactly. Yeah. There's some symmetry in Ryan Giggs boots and something being taken that doesn't belong to some. Anyway, I yep. don't know where I was going with that thought. Um, Graham, what, what, um, what you should point out perhaps to the American listeners is the consequence of when perhaps we were younger, if you wore any cleat that wasn't black, if you wore white or purple or pink, what would happen if you turned up like to a game in those boots you would get halved <laughs> yes you would get immediately targeted uh this guy fancies himself let's take him out that is you were yeah you were a target you were the yeah. Grealish in that team <laughs> if you turned up in in colorful boots but it didn't stop a load of my my teammates when I was a teenager actually buying those boots including myself as I say I had an all pair an all white pair of Reeboks that I would just never wear now but they were very comfortable Indeed. Taylor, how, how, uh, how about you? Your favourite pair of cleats? And did you ever have any fancy colours that got you some attention? Uh, I, I did later in life because the club I played for, you had to have either all black or predominantly black boots for uh, basically until I was 18. That's what I wore. Uh, so with that, I always, uh, my favourite one I ever got to wear with a little bit of colour was the Predator Accelerator. Those things were legendary. And I remember... Like, you know, pre, pre-internet sort of the, the whole idea of like, it, it does something with swerve and it makes it like you, you'll never yeah. hit the ball the same way. And I just remember being like, science will bend this ball into like a corkscrew and make me score a million goals. It didn't, but it made me feel like I was David Beckham or Zinedine Zidane and that was fun. <laughs> uh, later on, uh, I, I tend to wear all black still. So the, uh, there was a pair of Adidas Addy Zeros that were all black that I loved and will forever try to find, but the modern ones are all a bit uh, fancier and flashier. I've never really worn brightly colored boots. Uh, white, I think, is the, the the biggest outlier for me. It's either white or black uh, normally. Yeah, my current pair were white. They are no longer white. Um, <laughs> That's the downside, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Joe, how about you? So I am very similar to you, Ryan, in that my 25 to $35 pair of, of cleats from Dick's are usually what get me through. There was a time, though, where uh, I was roped into playing a game of pickup soccer with a college coaching staff, and I have no idea why they roped me in, because I am not good. But I didn't have any cleats or, or boots with me at the time, and so I actually borrowed a pair of one of the assistant coaches, and I don't know what they were, and I'll never have access to them again, but I liked those very, very much, and I've been on the hunt to find those mystery suckers ever since. Wow. What, one more uh, cleat story I'll give you, by the way. At the 2014 World Cup, I was in Brazil, and we uh, I was where they were Yahoo Sports, and we shot a segment where I would go and play uh, pickup with some local Brazilian kids who were just phenomenal, and you really got an insight into how different the way they play soccer is to the European way. But um, I was there with Adidas, and they gave me a pair of cleats to wear to this to this um, to this pickup game. They gave me—I don't know if you remember them—but Leo Messi had these really fancy cleats at that tournament. They were like black and white, almost like Dalmatian, but like rectangles, uh, and they cost three hundred dollars. And <laughs> I put them on for this game, and I thought. These are the least comfortable boots I've ever worn. I did not like them at all. And I ended up giving them to one of the kids who was like, oh, my God, this is the most incredible thing ever. I was like, yeah, okay, thank you. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. But um, I think it goes to show that not 
price doesn't always dictate how great a cleat is, but it also goes to show something we're going to be talking about in this episode, that the uh, the commercial realities of cleats and how, you know, they are very, very big business. Leo Messi obviously being a proponent of having a big sponsorship for his cleat with Adidas. Taylor, why don't we go a little bit further back in history from Leo Messi? I'd love to hear a little bit of history, the timeline of cleats, because uh, looking at my research... Um, apparently in Henry VIII's times, Tudor times, we're going back in English history again, um, uh, they had um, the first sort of cleats all the way back then. And from my understanding, that's basically the design until about 1940 that they stuck with. <laughs> the, the kind of high ankle boot, uh, heavy leather. They added some metal studs to those, but they were fixed in place. And I think the idea up until the 40s was that you're protecting yourself. It's not about being agile or quick or being able to get to the ball first. Uh, certainly not about getting the corkscrew swerve on the ball. It's about protecting yourself from... Uh, industrial challenges, agricultural challenges, I think is how we phrase it. Uh, and so you have very heavy, not particularly mobile boots, and that lasts, as I said, until around like the 1940s. There's some deviation there, but it's after World War II that you get a lot more versatility. But even then, it takes until about the 70s and the 80s for things to really become modern. But it's in the 1920s that the Dossler brothers start sort of changing the design a bit. And then the, the kind of standout moment, as I understand it, happens in post-war Europe in 1953. There's a friendly between England and Hungary. England still this sort of like uh, the the team to beat, even if they were a little bit weak, a little bit behind the times, maybe. And this ended up being a, a fairly heavy loss for England. Hungary beat them 6-3 at home uh, in England. This is an excerpt from The Ball is Round. To a man, the England players look like they have just rolled up their sleeves for another hard shift at the factory. Their kit is baggy. The Hungarians is fitted. On their feet are heavy, high-cut leather clodhoppers. The Hungarians wear lighter, low-cut, modern boots. The Hungarians go on uh, to win that game 6-3, to three, as I said. Uh, in 1954, one year later, West Germany defeats that same Hungary team, and they're wearing innovative screw-in studs, uh, courtesy of Adidas, who, who were sponsoring the team, and that allowed them to play through adverse conditions. There's not a huge amount of uh, change in the ensuing decades in the 1970s when you start to get different colored boots, the first pair of white boots worn by Alan Ball for Everton and the Community Shield in 1970. Uh, that's where sponsorship starts to take hold, and we can talk a little bit about that, obviously. But then in the 80s, you get the kind of shift toward the more modern era that we have now, where there's still a lot of leather, but you're getting some synthetics, you're getting different colors, you're getting different textures, especially with the Predator coming onto the market in the 90s. Uh, that's where you get a ton of experimentation with the outer texture and with different uh, synthetic fibers to allow you to do different things with the ball. And we continue to have that experimentation to this day. Taylor. And the thing about those, sorry to jump in, Ryan, but the thing about those uh, those white boots you mentioned, Taylor, the ones that Alan Ball wore in 1970, do you know the story behind them, that they were never actually intended to be white? So he signs no. a, a sponsorship deal with Hummel, the Danish company, but Hummel didn't have any boots that fit him. So they took his old Adidas boots, his previous sponsor, they took his old black Adidas boots and thought, well, we need to make them different somehow so that they don't just look like Adidas boots. So they just painted them white and said that they were Hummel. And that's wow. how you uh, had the first pair of all white boots. I'm not sure you would get oh, away with that man. now. No, but I remember, that's funny because that does lead to, like, I remember people when I was growing up where you had less variety would color in the stripes on Adidas to different colors to make them seem like they were custom. And you would get... Like some people painting them or applying different pens to make them seem like they were fancier than they might have been. So I like that that was even the manufacturer's approach early on. 
Uh, Taylor, thank you very much for that uh, timeline of evolution of cleats there, by the way. If you can yeah. cover 500 years of history in two minutes, why do Marvel films all need to be three hours long? That's all I can say. Um, uh, you got to expand that universe, baby. <laughs> Indeed. Anyway, uh, you mentioned there the Dassler brothers. Can we jump back to there and sort of the first suppliers, yeah. the sort of the, the, the first people who sort of mass marketed cleats, if you will? And typically the Dassler brothers, Addy Dassler, uh, Adolf Dassler, back when it was mm. still cool to be called Adolf in the 1920s, yeah. um, he started Addy Dassler and his brother also started started Puma, is that correct? That is. There's a uh, Soccer 101 episode way back in the feed where you can find the history of those two brothers because, yes, they start uh, – I think they're initially working for the same company. Rudolph Leaves starts Puma, as you said. They do not like each other at all. There are debates about uh, – <laughs> I think there's like an affair alleged, but then even now there are debates about which one of them was a more hardcore Nazi, which is an interesting one <laughs> since they both joined the Nazi party. Uh, and as I understand it, because they're – I think they were – still are, but definitely were headquartered in the same town. It was even this sort of like East-West Bloods Crips rivalry where like you can't intermarry. You There's bars for Adidas employees. There are bars for Puma employees. We don't like each other. And that existed for a very long time until I think the brothers had less involvement in the companies and they became the kind of commercial juggernauts that they are today. I'm guessing they still don't like each other that much. But you did have that sort of sibling rivalry lead to a massive, massive rivalry between two huge companies. So just to be clear, though, Taylor, um, Adi Dassler, Adi Das. His name wasn't mm-hmm. Adi, so it's not Adidas. Adi Das. We good? Uh, it's all day I dream about soccer. Thank you very much. <laughs> we do indeed. You, t- you truly are a PR man to the core, Ryan Bailey. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a stickler for the pronunciation of the acronym Adidas, as we have discovered there, uh, Graham. Uh, why don't we take a very quick break? When we come back, I want to get more into sort of this early stages of the commercial era of uh, soccer cleats and when they started, started to evolve, when players started to get sponsorships. More on that very shortly. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Soccer 101, welcome back. We are talking about cleat sponsorship and the history thereof. Graham Rudvan, let's get into sort of the early days. We covered the Dassler brothers when sort of things were evolving in the early 20th century. Where did things go from there? So from there, you kind of enter uh, an age of uh, commerciality where in the 60s and 70s, you start to get more colorful boots. You start to get some player endorsements for the, for the first time. One of the, the first big boot sponsorship deals was the one that um, George Best signed in the 1960s. And I think there were other boot deals before then with players, but this was a, a real landmark one. Best was one of the, the best players in the world at that time. And he signed a deal with a brand called Stylo at the yep. time. They were going head-to-head with the, the German giants, and they sold one million of the stylo matchmakers that Best wore at that at that point. And then from there, you have Pele uh, reportedly being paid $125,000 to wear Puma boots at the 1970 World Cup. Of course, he had a, 
a longer association with with that brand that I think is still going to to this day. And then uh, famously in the 1970 World Cup final, you have the the incident of him bending down to to tie his shoelaces very deliberately as the camera is on him, and obviously the camera pauses as he's tying his his, his uh, football boots, and the whole world sees his his Puma Kings, and it all feels. Very deliberate and, and a ploy for that brand to get beamed around the world. And yeah, as I say, from there, you, you kind of have a, an age of commerciality that leads right up to this day with boot deals. And I think the 1990s feels like when the, the football boot wars reached a whole new level. Um, and I remember a lot of that because that was very much my decade. And that was when I was a kid. And that was when I was buying boots and really into boots. But I think by all accounts, once you get to the 90s, it is a, a open warfare between a lot of the the big brands and a lot of the players that wear the boots. It's wonderful to think we went from Pele bending over to tie his shoelaces yeah. to Nicholas Bentner wearing paddy power pants. What <laughs> <laughs> an evolution. The Pele tying a shoe is probably my favorite moment of boot sponsorship, but obviously because it's a crafted thing to stop play, the camera zoom in, it's the first uh, World Cup broadcast in color, so you can see that he's wearing Pumas, but also the idea that there was a sort of like armistice agreement between yeah. Puma and Adidas not yeah. to pursue him. Like, we're both going to leave him alone. We're not going to get into a bidding war. And they definitely agreed on that. And then Puma quietly said, we'll give you a ton of money to publicly sport our boots and humiliate our rivals. Again, Puma, Adidas, not liking each other. Uh, and so the the kind of backstabbing aspect of that went into boot sponsorship, I guess, really kind of lays the groundwork for what's to come when it comes to how ruthless sponsorship can be. When you uh, dig into that a bit, Taylor, sort of the sponsorship and how things went with teams, with, yeah. with, with Adidas and the World Cup. Yeah, I think to, to echo what Graham said, I think I it, just it said does Adidas sort of... instead of Adidas. I just put yeah, just put my own point. We've won. No! There we've we won, go. America. Yes, <laughs> you're truly an American now, Ryan. Drink your soy latte. <sighs> uh, yeah, so I think it's it is a lot of individual sponsorship, like Graham talked about. You have Best in 1970, Pele as well. You have Maradona wearing Puma Kings in 1986. Puma really locking down some of the best players in the world. Good job by them. Um, but as we move towards the 90s, that is where I think it becomes. Less about like the hugest names in the world. That said, in 1983, we have our first uh, women's player sponsored, obviously Mia Hamm by Nike, and that indicates the rise of Nike uh, in- onto the scene. But it really does become everybody is going to be sponsored. Everybody is going to have some sort of uh, a boot deal. And that's even where we move from, okay, well, if everybody has boot deals, then certain players are going to get custom boots that will then be uh, sold in the mainstream. So they are built for that player's foot. And that is cool because you can wear the same boots as Ronaldinho or Ronaldo. But you, I'm guessing listener, do not have the same foot as Ronaldinho or Ronaldo. And if you ever look at the Shake underside yourself. of that that kind of... <laughs> fair, fair. Maybe you do. But if you look at the the underside of a boot, especially modern boots, and you see where the plastic molding is or whatever the, the material might be... That is the entirety of the support you're going to be getting. My friend who uh, managed a soccer shop taught me this lesson. And the arch on that one, that it is built for an incredibly narrow foot almost always with not a lot of support. And most people are not world-class athletes who have zero ounces of fat on them. So they don't really necessarily give you the support or the comfort that you might want, but they do work very well for the players for whom they are custom designed and built to perfectly fit their foot. Very interesting. Thank you, Tay-Tay. Uh, yes, Joe, I think um, this maybe coincides with when I started getting interested in soccer cleats as well, but it seems to me that 
sponsorship and boot sponsorship became a bit more mainstream, a bit more serious in the 1990s. That's when, to my knowledge, you had really expensive commercials on TV. At the Nike famous commercial started coming up. Yeah. You had Brian Giggs and, and Reebok then spending millions uh, trying to sell his cleats to people. You had um, Ronaldo at France 98 having a very famous incident with um, Nike sponsorship and him wearing their brand and such, Joe. Well, I think that era, it's not a coincidence that sponsorship sort of rises then because it's more visible, right? That's, that's, uh, starting the rise of mass media where we can consume these things and these advertisements in so many different ways. And it's so many more times. There's so many more opportunities to be consuming those things than in the previous decades. So you have the nineties, you really are starting to get some of these brand wars. And then even thinking into the 21st century and into today, you have a very clear few dominant global providers. You have Adidas, you have Nike, you have Puma. There's others as well, but those are, those are three of the biggest names in soccer boots or soccer cleats. And those are companies that have been very selective and very deliberate in who they're trying to target. Nike is an interesting one right now, especially. Adam Crafton had a good article for The Athletic out, I think, during a little closer to the heart of the pandemic about Nike actually choosing to step back from such a wide range of athletes that they had targeted to compete with brands like Adidas and Puma. They'd step back a little bit in players like Tiago and Rafael Varane and Sergio Ramos and Raheem Sterling and Robert Lewandowski. They were ending their relationships with Nike or vice versa, depending on the specific situation. And there, there are a couple different reasons uh, given for that. One reason could be the COVID-19 pandemic putting a financial strain on companies, even in this still very active sponsorship brand war era. That's one reason. And the other reason is just Nike wanting to focus on a smaller number of athletes. And I don't know which of those is true. I'm guessing there's some truth to both of those explanations. But it's an interesting one to me because you're seeing players like Neymar leave Nike back in 2020. And that might be more for uh, for actually trying to make himself stand out relative to other Nike athletes. But you still have this change where you almost end up with a, a couple of key headlining players for each brand. So Nike now has Ronaldo and they have had him for quite some time, Cristiano Ronaldo and Kylian Mbappe. And those are sort of their two headliners. Puma has Neymar who makes so much money from his sponsorship deal with Puma. He makes about $31 million a year reportedly from Puma. And then Adidas has Messi lock, locked up and he makes the second most money of any athlete in, in, uh, in soccer in terms of sponsorship deals. So starting in the nineties, Ryan, as you sort of pinpointed, you had this flurry of interest and, and all of a sudden this realization that we need to go out as a brand and sign player X and player Y so that this brand doesn't get them. And now we are seeing maybe slightly clearer and more delineated uh, brands and, and differences between their approaches to sponsoring athletes. But I do think a lot of that stemmed from the 90s. I specifically remember the 98 World Cup in particular being an yep. absolute battleground for brands and for boots because you had Nike coming on to the scene for really the first time. It's, it's easy to forget that Nike were not this big player in soccer for a long time. It was really about the mid-90s, mid to late 90s that they started to chase those deals. For a good example of this is Brazil for the 1994 yep. World Cup. When they won that World Cup, they were in Umbro, a pretty traditional English brand that's been around for decades by 1998 they're wearing nike and ronaldo's wear nike boots and so you had this giant brand with a lot of money keep in mind you know they were air jordan michael jordan basketball all the american sports they had a lot of backing and they're entering the the most popular biggest sport in the world so that 98 world cup will always stick in my mind as uh 
not just a soccer tournament, but a, a battleground for those brands. And it's been interesting over the over the years since then how Adidas and Nike and I read that same article, uh, Joe, because I am a nerd and I'm interested in boot deals. And I, rem- I remember reading it at the time and f- finding it really interesting. And it was interesting because up until then, Adidas and Nike had become these two massive camps where the best players were just getting divided into the two. And you had yep. a lot of the smaller providers. So uh, Umbro is a good example. You know, Umbro had been so Umbro had Manchester United kits until when did they? disappear like the early 2000s or something like that um and you had brands like hummel who i mentioned previously and french brands like lecoq sportif and in italy you had lotto and kappa and more recently macron although they don't really make boots but everyone was just going into these two camps the two biggest brands and puma kind of despite the fact that they had the history and puma more recently have come back with neymar as you mentioned joe and and manchester city have puma kits now but for a solid 10 years puma were were regressing and get and contracting and getting smaller and it was just all about adidas and nike and i think we're we're slightly coming out of that now with some new brands the two yeah. um, most prominent new brands are the two americans and um under armor new balance who seem to be collecting some players an interesting one is uh trent alexander trent alexander arnold obviously liverpool right back who is contracted to wear under armor boots but obviously wore new balance kits for a long time so he kind of found himself in the middle of that battle but new balance have raheem sterling they got him last summer in a deal worth tens of millions of dollars uh they have sadio mane they have bakayo saka so they've they've got some big names as well and it is interesting to see when a new brand comes on the scene the players that they go to. So obviously New Balance have have uh, done some done some sort of analysis that Raheem Sterling is, you know, like an English icon and someone that can really sell boots. I find that whole thing fascinating. Well, in a, a big Gra- part of that, I think, Graham, is, and we see this in the NBA, even with Steph Curry's story of going and, and having a meeting with Nike and then going to Under Armour because they, they couldn't get his name right. I think you see, because there are so many athletes being sponsored, players want the attention uh, and and the ability to have more of a personal relationship. I don't want to say they want attention like it's a bad thing, but they they want to have the ability to relate and actually understand and work with and, and come alongside of a brand. And at a certain point, if you're just splitting between Adidas and Nike and, and those companies both have hundreds of athletes on their books, you're not really going to get any sort of personalized attention. And so you see Steph Curry go and, and, and uh, be an Under Armour athlete and you see Trent Alexander-Arnold go and be a New Balance athlete. You see Neymar go and be, oh, sorry, excuse me, an Under Armour athlete. And then you go and see Neymar go to Puma and make bank while also being the guy for Puma. I think that trend is very real and it's even a cross-sport trend as well. Another thing that I found really interesting when I was doing the research for this, and I hadn't totally considered this, but of course it's 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 an aspect of these brands, their analysis that they do is almost this the scouting that they have to do yeah. on what players are going to be the next big thing. And sometimes they get it right and sometimes they get it wrong. I mean, I found a list of the the highest paid players um, in terms of their boot deals. And it was from last year, so this may have changed. But number five on that list was Mario Balotelli from yeah. Puma, who gets £5 million a year from Puma. And that deal dates back to 2014, when he was just ending his deal with Nike. At that time, Puma thought, well, this guy's going to be around for the next few years as one of the biggest stars in the world. And that hasn't paid uh, paid off for them. He's playing in Turkey for Adana Dem- Demerspor? I'm afraid I haven't even heard of that club, but that kind of tells you how he has uh, kind of fallen from that level. And sometimes uh, brands can get it right where they pick someone up as an 18-year-old and they have a relationship for years to come, but as Balotelli kind of proves there, sometimes you can get it wrong. 
I cannot believe he hasn't retired. I 100% thought Mario Balotelli was retired. That's interesting to know. Graham, who are there any other like ridiculous names on that list? I got so excited to hear it because I really want there to be like I could see a man you and I have mentioned previously, like Adnan Yanazai getting a deal and then maybe that one didn't quite work out i wonder who the other big names would be that didn't quite pan out not not really i mean he is the only outstanding name that you would you would never guess in the top 10 so the top 10 that i found was uh, neymar number one yeah. messi number two ronaldo three then mbappe then balotelli um then gareth bale which i guess more recently he's probably not the sixth best player in the world but at the time i guess uh antoine griezmann paul pogba marco Verratti, mohammed salah so and th- these companies are pretty good at kind of judging who to who to go with but as I say, sometimes they do get it wrong. And that's and they have, I think, not yet gotten it wrong when it comes to the lifetime aspect of things. Joe, you were talking about that one. And I think all three now have basically lifetime deals. Neymar has one with Puma, Messi with Adidas, Ronaldo with Nike. My question for you all, do, do you think that is actually like legitimately lifetime or do you think that is their playing career? Because if we're still getting Maradona-inspired boots and Pele-inspired boots, it stands to reason that we'll be getting Messi Adidas boots 20 years from now and i wonder if he will be getting 18 million pounds per year every year that he's alive because that seems like a pretty solid deal for i want the messy walkers that's what i want i want (laughs) i want like for the upper for the 65 plus pickup soccer that's that's the boot i want i don't know the answer to your question taylor but uh, i think that should be a thing the messy crocs for when he retires yeah yeah that's that's what i was envisaging was messy just wanting to wear like a pair of slippers and adidas rep just poking his head around the corner being like no Predators at all times. <laughs> it really makes the the comfort more tactile when you're wearing predator slippers. Yeah, <laughs> Taylor, I'd imagine those lifetime deals pertain to image rights and they pertain to mm. um, you know money and money coming from other places. So that is an interesting point. I still I'm still dazzled that Balotelli's getting five milli to go play in Turkey just to wear their cleats. That's incredible, Graham. That's a good find. <laughs> Wow. Okay. <laughs> Let's take a very quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about boot sponsorship and some of the biggest deals in boot sponsorship that have caught our eye back shortly. Soccer 101, welcome back. Graham Rutherford, I'm going to ask you a sincere question, which might sound curmudgeonly, but we'll be talking a lot about the deals that players have and Neymar switching to Puma and all these kind of things. Mm. Should I care? <laughs> I mean, I mean, um, sincerely. I mean, like, does it have an effect on? I suppose it's a, it's, it's it, generally it's marketing, isn't it? At the end of the day, and it's going to have an effect on who buys which cleat. But does it does it have an actual impact sporting wise? Uh, sporting wise, no, I guess not. But should you care? The brands are making the bet that there will be enough people who do care that a, that a player is wearing a, a certain a certain type of boots. I would suggest that both. You and I are now of a certain age where that is not the biggest thing in our in our life, but there was a point where every birthday and Christmas I would ask for a certain pair of boots, and they, that would largely be dependent on who was wearing those boots at the time, whether it was Beckham or, as I say, Ryan Giggs or someone like that. So um, I guess there is some analysis being done in the background that enough people do care, but we are probably not that target market now. That's completely fair. That's completely fair. Taylor, if we look at the landscape of boot sponsorship at the moment, and we've we've mentioned some new players like your New Balances uh, coming in to the fray, how do you see the landscape shaping up in the mm-hmm. next few years? Are we going to get some some new players in there potentially? A Tesla going to make a boot at some point? <laughs> I mean- 
you never know. That that would be a very Elon Musk thing. Trust me, no one has ever made football boots that are successful. I will do it. I'll put microchips and interfaces the that then boot. shut down when you're using them. I don't think that will work so well. <laughs> uh, I do think there will be maybe a little bit of change. I think we're still going to get the major powers because they have a ton of money and they have the money to sponsor those big name athletes. And so they will be front and center for forever. But I think as with a lot of things, when brands get too big, they stop being maybe as like responsive as they need to be. And they're not quite tailoring it to different clientele. And as I said, like you're getting shoes that are more narrow. They're not necessarily made for wider feet. If you're buying one for wider feet, there seems to be an assumption that like you're okay with being slow. So then they're making them heavier. That's when you get like the real leather, like the Copa Mundials, I think, uh, are the ones that will still be heavier, but do fit a wider foot. And I do wonder if we're going to get newer companies or just smaller manufacturers, more localized manufacturers, creating like like maybe more expensive shoes but nicer shoes for a greater variety of people and that's where you've got companies i will butcher this one but uh pantofola de oro uh i think they're an italian company that started making boots in 1886 they are very expensive but everything they make is beautiful it's all leather the designs are amazing they're just very innovative looking and and i think you'll get companies that do a smaller business, but are okay with doing a little bit smaller to make a higher end product. Uh, and that would be maybe a thing we will see is less like mass manufactured boots, or at least a few less manufactured and more regional or local or just very specific. And I think maybe more national brands will continue to kind of do what they do. So maybe that's, I don't know if Kelme is still around. I haven't worn Kelme or seen Kelme oh, very much and Joma as well, but uh, like Hummel will always be around Hummel in Denmark. And I would expect that will get them doing different things to try to compete with the giant manufacturers, but in a different way. They're never going to be as global as Nike. So maybe you do a few more unique things, unique customizations to stay afloat in the market. Sterling Albion or Joma from next season. I'm very there much looking forward to that. In terms of what the, the big brands are going to do in the next few years, they, they change their minds all the time. And yeah. I think that's going to continue as, as, as long as there is soccer. You know, I mentioned, uh, Nike withdrawing from some markets and then all of a sudden they're back and they're trying to get players. I think Erlen Haaland is going to Nike. Or actually, that might be Adidas, but this is a couple years after Adidas saying, they were also going to stop giving out new boot deals to big name players. Now they're getting Erling Haaland. Umbro pulled out of the market entirely and now they're back with some deals. So it's very fluid in terms of just the, the strategy of yeah. these companies. I guess a new person comes into Nike and all of a sudden they've got some, a new strategy and new ideas. And I, I think they're just all going to continue to jostle for position for decades to come. And some of that, to my understanding, is deliberate tactics because ultimately like you're wearing a boot if it's got studs if it's got laces or i guess some boots don't have laces lotto i think the first one to do that uh but like i think you don't really need this much innovation as i understand it the copa mundials are pretty much a perfect shoe they're a little bit heavier than maybe some other lighter weight models but if you are just making one shoe over and over and over again you're gonna lose a lot of market share so you've got to keep trying to appeal to different markets with different colors and different sizes and styles but you're not always necessarily making it unique i think you're you're just trying to cover a ton of bases. So then you'll get like uh, removing yourself from a market or Adidas dro- or Umbro dropping out for a minute to maybe create that demand of like, oh, remember Umbro? They were a great company. Let's bring them back. I could buy an Umbro. And then they do come back and then you do buy them. And I think that's what we'll continue to see is sort of that fluctuation because ultimately 
we're talking about shoes. And so it's, it's, you can add new technology, you can add new textures or new synthetic fibers or fabrics, but it's not that huge of a difference as I understand it. But the more you can market it as being a massive difference and maybe create that scarcity, the more money you're going to be able to make. Marketeers, uncover your ears. Taylor has stopped speaking now. Thank you very much. (laughs) Um, it just made me think for, for some reason about warrior sports and the mm. do you remember the cleats they made which had like two holes on the back they're terrible colors and they had two holes on the back like by your achilles like the bit where you need a bit of protection i would suggest <laughs> and they had like massive holes there and i hope they don't come back over for example <laughs> yeah i did find myself wondering if like we could if there would be somebody who was like they they figure this out in the 1800s we should go back to full high ankle boots and they've sort of done that with the built-in sock that covers your ankle but it's not quite as rigid uh, i guess you do have to be able to kind of move your ankle in the modern game a bit more than maybe giant leather boots would allow for does anyone remember the serafino fourth edge from a few years ago which were designed for players who wanted to uh toe poke the yes. ball more often they had the big flat what? edge on the front yeah. of them yeah yeah they were bizarre didn't harry redknapp <laughs> like put money behind them or he was he was at least uh, endorsing them as he endorses what? absolutely everything that that does not surprise me at all yeah. that what if he put shoes? money behind yeah, I've they're put, incredible. I just they put an image of them in the Slack. <laughs> they're yeah. so ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> that's so that's so nonsense. Look them up, listener. Oh, Big flat goodness. edge on the front, almost if you, if you were like using them on a work site or something. They're they're quite incredible. <laughs> um, so I hope they don't come back, Graham. I hope the Warrior Sports boots don't come back. But if we're going to talk about sort of noteworthy boots and the deals and the creations, the one that I come back to is the Adidas Predator. Um, and maybe this ties back to when I asked Graham, like. Is, should I care about boots? Well, in terms of Adidas Predator, I suggest they were kind of a game changer in, t- in terms of what they did and their design and the way they allowed you to hit the ball differently. And actually, Taylor, perhaps you can talk about this. Um, they were actually invented by a Liverpool player. Uh, this story is the modern equivalent of like Jordan Henderson inventing yeah. a brand new boot. Yeah, you can see him in the Anfield rap if you want to. His bit is him, I think, sitting in the mud looking forlorn because his line was about how he doesn't get to play very much. But he ends up having a bit of influence when it comes to shoe design, though I don't think he ends up making the money that you would expect from it. But to my understanding, he's playing around with boots. He's kind of feeling like they don't give him enough control of the ball. There's not enough grip uh, to give him the control he wants. And what uh, Craig Johnson goes for, uh, the Liverpool player, is a table tennis pad. And I think he takes the padding off of a table tennis racket, I guess. Is that what we call that? Paddle? And uh, ah. puts it onto a boot. He glues it on himself, I think. And then from there, that's the prototype. But I think he continues to develop it and utilize it. And he does indeed get different control or better control. But he also is able to put more spin on the ball and hit it in different ways with more force because you have these synthetic panels that like basically don't give as much cushioning. So they're going to hit it with more force. They're going to carry the ball uh, forward. That's me explaining physics. Don't listen to me. But the idea is that they give you more power, more control. And I think Adidas from there take that idea and make them glorious. They are some of the most like innovative shoes that I will remember, even if they're probably 14 pounds in weight based on the look <laughs> of the original Predators. Yeah, I was also really into table tennis bats, by the way. That's a completely true story. I love the Stiga bat. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so you, what, you call them b- bats? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Stiga was the brand. They always made the best handles. It was always like cool wood. It was, yeah. <laughs> cool right. wood. 
Cool wood, everybody. Um, I, I do remember um, the Predators, they they were very mar- heavily marketed. It was Paul Gascoigne in the 90s, and it was David Beckham who wore them afterwards, and they were very coveted on, on the playing field, and my, some of my friends had them, and I didn't because they were like over 100 pounds, which is outrageous, particularly in the 1990s. Uh, Joe, let's talk about some of the more noteworthy deals. One that strikes me is the curious case of Stan Bowles. Yeah, this one is my favorite anecdote for this for this whole episode. The the Puma and Adidas Pele Pact is another one that Puma just went ahead and disregarded. But Stan Bowles had a deal with a brand called Gola that he would make 200 pounds every time he played for England back in the 70s. He had that deal and then Adidas approached him and said, hey, we'll, we'll pay you 250 pounds. And Stan Bowles, being the business genius that he was back in the 1970s, thought to himself, well, Let's just take home the entire 450 pounds combined from both of those two deals by bearing, by wearing one boot on both of his, of his foot. So he had, he had one boot that was Adidas and one boot that was Gola. And he went out and played for England, uh, that day or, or whenever it was after making the Adidas deal. And, uh, he, he's talked about later how that didn't go over particularly well. I'm not sure if the 450 pounds ever actually made it into his bank account, but the ingenuity there alone deserves 450 pounds. That seems like such a small amount of money, doesn't it, Joe? <laughs> <laughs> My goodness me. Uh, any other big stories? I mean, we, we, we touched on Pele, didn't we, and his, his, his Puma, um, multiple deals with them. Yeah. 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 I'll add, I'll add one other one. This isn't specifically a a player. I mean, it is a player story, but it it more gets to a concept. Um, Adnan Yanazai, who we mentioned earlier, uh, had a contract with Nike and this was, uh, this was, uh, his, his really first big sponsorship deal. He had a contract with Nike and then he was in between that contract that had ended and a new contract with New Balance. So I guess the, the paperwork was being filed or whatever the situation was. And so what, what he did and what a lot of players do now when they're between deals, is to avoid giving any sort of attention to the old brand that they used to be affiliated with. They'll spray paint their their cleats black. So he just had what they call blackout boots. And so he spray painted them, and the game he had to play that weekend uh, was incredibly rainy, apparently. Uh, and so <laughs> he was playing in these blackout, these spray-painted and old Nike boots, and the rain started to wash the spray paint away. And all of a sudden, you could tell that he was wearing Nike boots. And New Balance, of course, wasn't particularly happy about this. I don't know that it had a, a massive effect on his his future career and work with New Balance. But it's an interesting concept to think about players not wanting to give away that marketable part of their playing attire, right? They want to be careful with what they're doing and want to use those tools in as smart of, of ways as they can. So I, I guess maybe the, the truth here is find some sort of spray oh, paint that is rain resistant. I don't know what the takeaway is here, but Adon not didn't quite tar. get it right. Tar. Done. Yeah. <laughs> Joe, see, what, what I think, this is the way it happens, is that like those blackout boots like didn't work, obviously, the spray paint. So what I could totally see is a company developing a like transition shoe for when you are yeah. out of contract but haven't yet signed one. We don't want you wearing that new one. We don't want you wearing Nike anymore. You're going to be with Puma now, so you're going to wear the, the Puma transitions. And they're, they have no Puma labeling on them. They're just all black. So you're not sponsoring anybody until you eventually agree to that deal. But then those boots will catch on, and then everybody will just sell the all-black blackout boots with no label. But they're like the inside is probably like heavily labeled with Puma. That seems to be the way it goes is individual ideas sort of catch on and become innovative and then become widespread from there. Uh, and that is, I guess, what happened with the Predator. You go from one guy making 
these shoes and having a patent to then selling the patent for probably less money than he deserved. And then David Beckham wears them a year or two later and scores from midfield. And suddenly everybody thinks, I want to be able to hit the ball like David Beckham. I will buy those shoes. Don't we all want to hit it like Beckham? Hit it like Beckham, the famous movie. Um, <laughs> Graham, one final point from me. And I did ask you whether it had sporting importance, these boot sponsorships. And it's just occurred to me, maybe it does. Because I think I've seen like transfer rumors, for example where it said, oh, player X, wears, he's an Adidas athlete. Adidas, I did it again. He's an Adidas athlete. Mm-hmm. Um, he's going to go to Bayern Munich, who are owned partly by Adidas, or he's going to go to Real Madrid because they have Adidas sponsorship. Is that, is that anything that actually has substance to it, do we think, that, mm-hmm. that a player can be influenced to sign for a certain team because their apparel is made by the same people who make their, um, their cleats? I think, I think there can be influence in terms of, you, you always read those transfer rumors that a certain brand is going to stump up some of the cash to get a player to a club. And I'm not entirely sure that that has ever happened before. That was always the thing with Ronaldo going back to Manchester United when Manchester United were also Nike and they were going to put up some of the transfer fee to get him back to, to United because obviously Real Madrid were Adidas. Um, I do think it can influence, using another Manchester United example, I think there was some influence in Paul Pogba going back to Manchester United because I remember when they announced that deal, they announced it with an Adidas commercial with Stormzy that was how they announced his yep. because of course of course they did it was actually a really cool video it was one of my favorite transfer announcements Graham, was that and, Graham, and so to... that was kind of okay. tied in with his boot deal on you go tail no it's it doesn't matter it was not going to be useful don't worry about it <laughs> <laughs> so I don't I don't know whether the, it, it practically has an influence but obviously it can grease the wheels of a transfer if uh, uh, a player is wearing the same brand of boots that a team is wearing the same apparel of I think for like weirdly for me, it works the opposite that if I'm Adidas, I want my Adidas athlete to go play for a team that's sponsored by Nike, because then it always looked to me like that player could obviously get free Nike boots if he wants to. But he is choosing to sport another boot because they're just that much more superior. And obviously, it's actually because he's being paid millions and millions of dollars to wear those. But it looks not insulting, but a little bit like, ooh, okay, maybe I don't want Nike because that whole team is wearing Nike, but that guy's not, and I like that guy. So to me, it always made sense to go the opposite way and not have it be one uniform thing. It, it feels That feels a bit, Taylor, when you've got, say, Nike cleats on an Adidas uh, shirt. It feels like, you know, even those commercials where, like, Coca-Cola has got Pepsi branding in it and they're comparing the two products. And, like, there's laws against that in most countries, mm-hmm. but you could do it in the States. It kind of feels like that weird, weird it's- crossover. It's wild how you can do that in the yeah, States, just amazing. compare one rival against another. I kind of like it. I kind of like that beef in my uh, in my commercials. There's a, there's a strange, this is often a little bit of a tangent, but it is linked slightly. So, you, uh, Joe, you were mentioning like blackout boots there, and sometimes players will actually wear a blackout boot of their new brand to kind of basically wear in their, you know, how we wear in shoes, basically so that they, the new boots, that the new brand of boots they're going to wear they're going to be comfortable. And so uh, Andy Murray was doing this with his new brand. He went to Under Armour and he didn't like the Under Armour shoes. And so as part of his new contract, he wore for a whole season, he wore his old Adidas trainers, <laughs> which I'm not entirely sure Under Armour were getting their bang for their buck with Andy Murray basically saying, no, I don't like Under Armour uh, trainers. I don't like them so much that I'm being paid to wear them and I'm not. I'm still not going to wear them. And you brought it back to tennis. Thank you very much, Graham Rutherford. I always do. <laughs> indeed, indeed. I think that just wraps about uh, wraps about that just about wraps <laughs> up boot sponsorship. I'm losing the ability to talk, so we should probably stop it there. But for now, Taylor Rockwell, thank you so much for your contributions. 
Thank you, my friend. Great hosting, Ryan. Oh, apart from when I forgot how to speak a minute ago, but thank you. Oh, yeah, besides that. Besides that. Joe Lowry, thank you so much. You got it, Ryan. Graham Rutland, pleasure as always. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. Listener, thank you for sticking with us for this one. We'll be back on the feed next week with another fascinating topic. But for now, catch you later.